Okay, that is uh, one minute past the hour, which maybe I should discuss if we should be more charitable with the uh, the start time. But um, that's a policy discussion for another day, I suppose. Uh, thanks for joining, everybody. It's good to see you as always. And uh, I do not have any updates or additional information for you. So uh, without further ado, Robert has another lesson for us. All right, uh, let's get started. Uh, first of all, Matt, I see you're getting compliments on the chat for your shirt, by the way. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I not that this is a opportune time for a story, but uh, I have had this shirt for a little while, and I, I this was actually my wedding night shirt too, and uh, and it's been it's been in the back of the closet for too long, so. Well. Busted it out today, and today, as Robert and I were discussing a little bit, was an eventful day. I think this shirt inspired some stories. Anyway, well, we may I have a more it. a more fiery Bible study tonight. <laughs> I, I would call it maybe a, a lucky shirt would be a mischaracterization, but a, a shirt that provokes uncommon events. How about that? <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, today we are going to finish chapter three. And then I think from here on out, we can actually move even a little bit faster. I feel like chapter one was very dense. And so we went very slowly. Then chapters two and three are still fairly dense, but not quite as much. And then from here on out, until we get later into the book, we can actually progress faster. Um, but at any rate, let me go ahead and read the passage and we will get started. It says, For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Now this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil, sorry, for everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light, so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light, so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples came into Judean territory, and there he spent time with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming to him and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now a dispute came about between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew concerning ceremonial washing. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan River, about whom you testified. See, he is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. John replied, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but rather, I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This then is my joy, and it is complete. He must become more important while I become less important. The one who comes from above is superior to all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is superior to all. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, 
but no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has confirmed clearly that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he does not give the Spirit sparingly. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things under his authority. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. Okay. Um, so I, I want to start today with a quick summary of the last three chapters, because I think, you know, I have been really narrowing down on each passage and I really haven't taken the time to kind of look at the big picture. So I thought we might do that very briefly today and then we will move into what we just read. Notice that chapters one, two, and three, they work like a mini gospel of sorts. What I mean by that is the entire gospel message, or most of it anyways, is in those three chapters. Um, I have a list in the blog. So in chapter one, we see that Jesus is God and Jesus is with God. So it introduces this idea of both Jesus being divine, but also the idea of the Trinity, right? Of being multiple persons in the Godhead. Then as Jesus, as Jesus being creator of all things, and we see that creation, though, is in darkness, right? So Jesus is the light, he, and, and he comes into his own creation that is in darkness, and the darkness does not uh, master the light. And remember, we talked about that word, how it can mean both overcome and understand. At the same time, we see that Jesus is actually a man. So Jesus is both God and Jesus is man. And you might remember that, that phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us we immediately see the theme that Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins, which in the blog I called an ex expiatory sacrifice. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm pretty sure I'm not. Expiatory. That's, sorry, there we go. Expiatory sacrifice. Um, we see this in the phrase, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And remember, that was a throwback to the Old Testament, to the Lamb of the Passover, which is called the Paschal Lamb. Then Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, right? John the Baptist is baptizing with water, and then Jesus is baptizing with the Holy Spirit, or will, anyways. We see Jesus as Messiah, and I have two exclamations by, or two statements uh, made by the disciples. You know, we have found the Messiah, another one that says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Then in chapter 2, we really get kind of one major theme that is repeated two different ways. One, we see that true cleansing, true purification is coming, or has come, rather. The jars for ceremonial washing that used to be full of water now have been filled up with wine, right? And wine both brings pictures of celebration. It, it relates to the pictures in the Old Testament of, of the kind of the end times when the Messiah would come and things would, would become better, would become perfect, in fact. And if we read later into the book, then it also relates to Jesus's blood. Also, with Christ comes true religion, right? The temple has become, at this point, the marketplace. And Jesus says, destroy it and I will rebuild it in three days. So like the true temple, the true religion has come. And finally, chapter three, we start talking about salvation. 
we see the way of salvation, you must be born again, right? Which really the more correct translation would be, you must be born from above. The price of salvation, it comes through Christ's crucifixion. And today, I, I'm going to touch on, on these last two points, the offer of salvation, you know, whoever believes uh, will be saved, will have eternal life, and the condemnation of sin, which is he who does not believe remains in his sin and is condemned. Okay. So I hope that is to some extent helpful if you've been listening and you're kind of lost, like, you know, where's this going? Where's this coming from? It's quite incredible to me how the first three chapters work, um, all the information that is presented there. Okay. So let's get to today's text. And we begin with perhaps the most famous verse in the entire Bible, which is John 3.16. You, you have probably seen this in like bumper stickers on cars or, you know, some sometimes on brands, certain companies, Christian companies will have John 3.16. And for, for good reason, by the way, I'm not like making fun of that or anything. Uh, I'm just saying it's, it's very, very popular. Now, I don't say perhaps it's literally the most famous verse, not that that matters, but I think Genesis 1.1 might be better known. I don't know. I haven't seen stats on that. Again, not not that it really matters. But in the blog, I quote the version from the King James Bible, just because that's what we're all familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? Surely most people have heard that. Well, Let's try to dissect this statement, and this is really going to lead our discussion today. First of all, that, that first part, for God so loved the world. In that particular English translation, we may understand this, this phrase, so loved the world, as meaning amount, right? God loved the world so much. But really what this is talking about is how God loved the world, okay? So, and notice that in the translation that I read, it, it makes that quite explicit. It says, for this is the way God loved the world. And this is not to take away from how much God loves us, but actually it, it's, it's, it makes the statement even more powerful. How God loved the world? Well, by giving up his only son, right? It, it is a sacrificial, it, God loves us in a sacrificial way which is shocking, I, I would say. I mean, it might not be shocking to us because we're so used to Christianity, even if you're not a Christian, like our culture is so thoroughly Christianized. But the idea that God would, would suffer for his creation and, it, and to such an extent would have been shocking at the very least at the time when this was written. Um, and... You know, again, what what is this pointing to? This is pointing to uh, God giving up his only begotten son. Now, that phrase, begotten, by the way, we've talked about this in the past, so I'm not going to make a huge deal about it. But it, it, that, that word really denotes somebody who is very special. It's not necessarily what we would think of as begotten, but it's the way that uh, Jews might refer to some someone extremely extremely special and unique in a certain sense and like i said i, I talked quite a bit about that uh, i think 
the very first time we met or the very second time. So um, you guys can go back to that if, if you're interested in that. But this idea of giving up his only begotten son relates all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, which is remarkable. I mean, Genesis chapter 22 is pretty much the beginning of the story of Israel, because the first 11 chapters, I believe, is what we might call primordial history, where you have the creation of, of the world and the Tower of Babel and the flood and all, all those events, right? And then it's later in the book of Genesis that finally Abraham is introduced, who becomes Abraham. And Abraham begins the story of Israel, right? Well, how does this story begin? And I quote the passage at length in the blog, but it's Genesis 22 verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to read it all, but I do want to summarize the story because I, I, I don't feel like we can truly um, understand the depth of the unity of the Bible, how it's one solid story, if we don't at least see this connection, that at the very beginning of the story, God tells Abraham, sacrifice your one and only son, right? And we could even include more details. This is the child of the promise because already God has made promises to Abraham saying, through, essentially, you will have many, many descendants after Abraham thought that he would have none, okay? And so finally, Abraham is blessed with a son and God says, sacrifice him. And Abraham, you know, goes off to, to, to a mountain to do what God has told him. And at the very last moment, I mean, this is, this is like a movie when, when Abraham is about to harm his son, God says, stop, 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 don't. And God does not ultimately require that. And by the way, this is. The, the Old Testament is adamantly opposed to human sacrifice. So this is clearly a test of faith. It, it's not something that God ever intended to happen. But at the conclusion of this, of this story in the Old Testament, the, the kind of the last line is God will provide. Okay, God will provide. And that is such an incredible foreshadowing because God will provide. Well, God will provide what? At the end of the day, God will provide the sacrifice for our cleansing, for our forgiveness. And that sacrifice is God's only son. And whether you, I suppose whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe the story or not, the poetic beauty in it, I think, is, is kind of unquestionable. Um, but just... I hope everybody can can see that connection and see that this has been the plan of salvation from the very beginning. So from the very beginning, God planned that through Abraham's seed, Christ would come and Christ would be that, that sacrifice. Well, then as Christ comes, the world is put to a choice, so to speak. Uh, I will read here. Let me go back to the passage that that we just read. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna reread a couple of verses. It says, "For the one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already." Okay. Now, notice that because I I think that this is one of the most misunderstood 
aspects of Christianity. Sometimes people will accuse of Christians of saying, oh, so God just sends people to hell because they just chose wrong. You know, they just didn't believe the right guy and they believed this other guy, you know, whether that other guy is like Buddha or, you know, who, whoever else, whoever else you want to think of. Um, and that's not actually the Christian formula, so to speak. The idea behind the Christian message is that we are sinners, that we are, we are bent the wrong way. And God offers us salvation and we say no. But notice that the condemnation is not for rejecting Christ. We're already condemned, right? That's the language. We're already condemned. We're condemned for our sins, for the things that we have done wrong. And that Christ is the way out of that. So whoever rejects Christ remains in condemnation, remains in this perishing condition. In that, it may seem like mincing words, but it's really not. It's, it's actually quite relevant um, because otherwise kind of the story of, of divine justice that the Bible is telling doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's also, I, I, I think, perhaps shocking to, to somebody who's looking at Christianity from the outside, this idea that Christ did not come to condemn, but Christ came to save. And that's very much what the passage says, right? Like, Christ could have come here to destroy all sinners. And if Christ really is God, right, as the Christian claims, he could certainly do that. But he didn't. He came to offer us this way out, right, to offer us salvation. Now, the other thing that I wanted to explore today is salvation from what and into what? Because we may say, okay, so we are saved from our sins, we're saved from perishing that that would be 316 right if we go i'm gonna keep kind of going back to that verse because it's it sets all this out so so concisely and so well he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life okay so if we reject christ the idea is that we perish and i you know I want to kind of leave this idea of perishing aside for just a minute to see what is the alternative. Well, if we're not perishing, then what what happens to us? Well, we are offered eternal life. And I have found that this idea of eternal life, right, what we would normally call heaven, but or at least part of eternal life is heaven. I'll get into that as well. It's, it's really misunderstood not only by non-believers, but by Christians alike. So what do we mean by eternal life? There's a few things that we know, and then there are some things that we don't know. And this has come up already in our conversations in prior weeks. So I, I think this may clear up some misconceptions. One thing that this passage already makes clear, but this is all over the New Testament, is that this eternal life begins now, right? At the new birth begins the new life. And we discussed the, the new birth last time, of course. Um, you can see this from the the present tense that the Greek is using. Um, I have this somewhere. I talk about the, the grammar. Um, give me one second. Mm -mm. Oh, yes. It's the present active subjunctive. Not that anyone cares about that. But, it, but in the Greek, it, it becomes kind of more clear that the eternal life begins now. But at any rate, you can see this from 
a number of other passages. Okay, so it begins now and it kind of ends in what, right? Where are we headed? And we would normally refer to that place where we're going to live forever as heaven. But heaven carries a whole lot of connotations today that at least it didn't at the time, right? We, we're thinking of movies. We are probably thinking of a place where we're like walking on clouds and we're all wearing white robes and playing a harp and something along those lines, right? That's always the idea of heaven that we see. Now, the biblical language and the language of the early creeds is a little bit different. And I'm not saying, by the way, that heaven is the wrong word to use. I'm not trying to be really edgy and say, oh, you know, everybody's got it wrong. No, not at all. It's just that now that word carries images in our heads from movies and, like I said, you know, comic books and all that stuff. Well, in the Bible, normally we hear about the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. And I have three three verses that I'm going to read, and then we're going to talk about that because I think this is really important. Uh, first, I'm going to read 2 Peter 3.13. It says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. Then Revelation 21.1-5. Now, keep in mind that Revelation is very metaphorical. So what I'm about to read may not be uh, kind of a literal description of things, but still gives us a whole lot of information. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. And finally, let me read from the Old Testament. This would be Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. It says, For look, I am ready to create new heavens and the new earth. The former ones will not be remembered. No one will think about them anymore. But be happy and rejoice forevermore over what I am about to create. For look, I am ready to create Jerusalem to be a source of joy, and her people to be a source of happiness. Jerusalem will bring me joy, and my people will bring me happiness. The sound of, the sound of weeping or cries of sorrow will never be heard in her again. Okay, so what do we know about this, this life eternal that again begins now, but it doesn't come into complete fulfillment until later? Well, uh, we know that righteousness truly resides there. So there's no more sin. There's no there's no more evil there. Um, we know that God will reside with us in a very real way, in a much more real way than it than it happens today. Uh, we know that death will be no more. We know there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. So all that goes right along with our idea of heaven, right? When we think of heaven, we think of this perfect place right on track. Um, we also see it's a place of joy, right? It, happiness and joy. This word rejoice keeps coming up. Um, so very happy place with not only no pain, but no evil and certainly no death that I could have brought in a, you know, a hundred other verses to, to discuss that. Now here's kind of the kicker though, that, that I, I don't know 
and perhaps everyone here does, but I don't know if, if, if a lot of Christians sometimes realize this. Let me quote the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And these two creeds, by the way, they're very early, particularly the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, it's a little later, but just about every Christian affirms both. And, and I really do mean that. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Protestant or whatever, pretty much everybody affirms these. Notice what in the creeds the believers are looking forward to. Okay, so first the Apostles' Creed. As I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Notice that phrase, the resurrection of the body. Now, in the Nicene Creed, we get almost the exact same language. It says, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. So, um, what... The, the point that I'm working myself up to is that heaven, what we call heaven, is a physical place. It's not a merely spiritual place. I don't want to say that it's not a spiritual place because certainly there's a spiritual element to it, but it's not merely spiritual. We're not these like disembodied ghosts that kind of live among the clouds or something of that nature. Not at all. The idea of eternal life is the resurrection of the body. We we will be bodily creatures again. Now, the, the New Testament makes clear that our resurrected bodies will be different. They will be eternal bodies that don't decay, that don't suffer, that don't die. Um, the earth will be different and the heavens will be different. And I think that refers both to all creation and the sense in, in, in which God will dwell with us and not just in the heavens, right? Like in this other dimension, so to speak. So sure, the new heavens and the new earth will be different, but there's still a place. There's still a physical place where we have physical bodies. And perhaps, again, everybody listening today is going, yeah, Robert, we know this. But, uh, you know, what? well, I guess I said it already, but from my experience, sometimes this doesn't quite uh this doesn't quite make it <laughs> to uh to to the mindset of the believer um or the or the non-christian of course well there's um a couple of other minor points that i also wanted to to bring up uh before before i'm out of time which is that th there is again this like dichotomy or this dualism, I ought to say, between darkness and light that John is bringing up. And John makes it very explicit that the reason that people reject the light is because they're not only in darkness, but they prefer the darkness, right? They love the darkness. And coming to the light will have a very unsavory effect, which will be that their deeds will be exposed, right? The light, through the light, you can properly see things and you would see that some of the things that have been done by people are, are quite wicked. I, to, to, to kind of understand this idea of, of people being in darkness and loving the darkness, I brought in some language from the Articles of Religion of the Methodist Church. This dates back to, the, to 1808. But for all I know, there's not a Methodist in this place, you know, that is listening to me. Um, well, actually, I know of at least 
too. But at any rate, I'm not trying to make anyone Methodist. I just thought this was a very good, concise statement. Um, and, and I'll read it out loud. Now, the statement is actually about original sin, and I don't want to focus on original sin today. That's not really what I was going after. Uh, it, it mostly explains the condition of man. At any rate, it says the following. Original sin is the corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and of his own nature inclined to evil in that continually. Right? This idea that man is inclined to evil sorry man is inclined to evil continually okay that, that that is generally the christian view of humankind now there are some disagreements kind of how wicked man is we could say which certainly go beyond the scope of what i'm discussing today but every christian can agree that the nature of man is inclined to evil and so man decides to reject the light another quick point that i want to bring up before i'm out of time is that one of the remarkable things we see in the passage we read today is that John doesn't seem to make a distinction, or at least not very much of a distinction, between faith and, and works. Now, I know that as soon as I say that, you know, people are going to get nervous and go, oh no, oh no, Robert is going to preach salvation by works, which is not what I'm going to do. Uh, but what I, what I am going to point out is just simply what's in the text, which is that John speaks of people who believe in Christ and people who act according to the light. Like those two things are synonymous. And people who don't believe to people who do wicked things. Again, it's synonymous things. Effectively driving the point home that if you are in the light, you will do the works of the light. And if you're in the darkness, you will do the works of the darkness. You you can't have a break there. Like you cannot be in the light and then continue to live in a completely wicked way. Of course, we all know, uh, we've talked about this in the past, that Christians are not perfect. Christians are going to continue to sin. But there is a difference. There, there, and if there's not, then, uh, you know, I would, I would just think of, of the words spoken by Christ. You know, you will know them by their fruit. Uh, if there's bad fruit, then that person is not in the light. If there's good fruit, then that person is in the light. Uh, it They really do seem quite tied together. And finally, in the passage, we return to John the Baptist. This is also why I think that the first three chapters of John, of the Gospel of John, not John the Baptist, they kind of work as a unit because they kind of begin with John the Baptist and then they end with John the Baptist. And it, and it makes a very nice kind of self-contained story. And there's not a whole lot of theology that I can really draw from the words of John the Baptist, but it has great pastoral advice, right? Like if I was a preacher, which I'm not, I mean, this would be just prime material. Because John the Baptist makes three just beautiful points for the life of the believer. One, uh, he says, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. Right? As his followers come to him and they're like, hey, Jesus is getting all the attention over there. And I know that I'm oversimplifying that a bit, but it's kind of what's going on. That's his response. No one can receive anything unless he has been given to him from heaven. Meaning there's there's no competition with God here. If, you know, God gave me this ministry where I 
I am the forerunner of Christ. My, my purpose is to point to him. And that is the role I've been given. And that's that, you know, that's the role that, that God has given me. There's just no arguing with that. And instead he expresses words of joy. You know, I, I am like the friend of the groom who, who is about to get married. And so I rejoice with the groom and, and that is very much right. The, the Christian belief that we serve Christ and we rejoiced in Christ's victory in the end. Then uh, he has this beautiful phrase that I actually don't like, uh, or I shouldn't phrase it like that. The NET Bible translates this phrase correctly, but just not as beautifully as other translations, where it says he must become more important while I become less important. Other translations say he must increase while I must decrease. And I just think that's a beautiful way of phrasing this, that um, in, in, you know, the kind of the pastoral point that would be made is that in, in our lives as we follow Christ, he, he becomes the, you know, more of the central figure and, and, and we decrease uh, as far as the focus on us, which is not to say that we're not important. We're just focused on him instead of on us. And then the third point that uh, we could pull from, from John the Baptist's words is when he says, the one who comes from heaven is superior to all. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, right? At the end of the day, the, the reliability of Christ goes back to who he is, right? If Christ really did come from heaven, which is a very fanciful way of saying that Christ is God, then uh, we can believe him because he's testifying to what he has seen and heard. Be, he, being God himself, he knows these things to be true, so we can take his words to be true, right? And and so it kind of goes back to chapter one of, of the Gospel of John, where God you know, Jesus is the word and the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And that's the crux of the issue. That is the whole reason why we can believe him. Um, and before I kind of turn it over for questions and uh, Matt, I don't know if, you, I don't know if you want to say it or if you just want me to say that people can type question in the chat. I don't know if you want to Sure. Yeah. I, I can do the announcement. Okay. I, I guess that is my role. <laughs> yeah. As usual, if people want, I uh, have a point of discussion, question, whatever uh, vocal contribution you may choose to make, uh, just go ahead and type question in the chat. Again, you don't need to write your question, just the word question. I'll use that as a cue that you want to be pulled in. And, um, we should, uh, lately we've had enough to get to everybody. So we'll just go in order unless volume becomes an obstacle, but, okay. uh, but it looks like we're in good shape. So let, let me you have make additional points you want to make. Yeah. yeah. Just a couple more quick comments and then I'll, I'll turn it over to questions, but I figure we might, we might as well give that announcement. So, sure. um, I, I was thinking about last week and it, there was, just two points of clarification from last week. And I don't know if anybody else cares about this, but when we're talking about the grammar of that phrase, water and spirit. And I said that whenever two words just refer to one idea, there's a grammatical term for that. And I could not remember it for the life of me. And then like a day later, I'm doing dishes and it finally comes to me. It's the word hendiadis, by the way, by the way, hendiadis, H-E-N-D-I-A, 
D-Y-S. Um, just in case you guys were wondering, I could not think of that. The other thing that I wanted to clarify very quickly because I thought of it all week, regarding that same phrase, somebody asked, is that talking about two events, like a baptism of water and then a baptism of the Spirit, or just one event? And in my mind, I kept thinking, I, all I had in my head was this debate of whether baptism is, is a sacrament or not, which, which denominations disagree on. And we can get into that if people want to, but otherwise, you know, I'm okay leaving it. Um, and so I kept kind of misinterpreting what this person was asking, you know, one baptism or two baptisms. And then I realized he, perhaps he was coming from a different faith tradition, um, where they sometimes talk about two baptisms, a baptism of water, and then later, a baptism of the Spirit, which normally is evidenced by speaking in tongues. Um, and I just kind of wanted to acknowledge that, that I totally missed his question because I, I wasn't quite understanding where he was coming from, and that was my fault. And I, to answer his question a week later, I think that that text is clearly talking of one event, right? Of one new birth. Um, of course, some people will disagree with me on that, but at least I wanted to clarify that. And that being said, we can turn it over for questions. Sure. Uh, looks like we just have two people wanting to chime in, so I will get to that momentarily. And of course, if you would like to chime in, just type question in the chat and I'll get to you. Um, before we get to them, I just want to say I appreciated what you had to offer or what you said about condemnation. Uh, as somebody who comes to this with uh, I don't know, uh, a, a former high degree of skepticism about a lot of these concepts with an admittedly low understanding of these concepts. A lot of that language comes off exactly the way you described where it's, it's threatening. It's almost like it, it's do this or you will burn, you know? And, um, as someone who's been a religious skeptic for pretty much all of my adult life, that is one thing that I found to be really off-putting, I suppose. Um, I don't like to be threatened into things. I like to know why I should do things. I like to be convinced, not threatened, I suppose. And the, and the way that that you explain this phrasing of condemned already, I think is very interesting. Um, because it, I would, without your explanation, I still would have read that as God is so swift with his condemnation that he'll get you before you even realize that you're got. But what you're talking about is you, the, what you got to is, is the word already implies a precondition. Basically this is your, your state is condemned until you accept, um, the faith until you accept God, all of these things. But it got me thinking about condemned by whom, you know, if I, if I reject these concepts, am I condemned by God or am I condemned to some degree by myself or maybe just by my very nature as a human being of imperfection. But uh, I don't know. I don't have answers to those questions. I'm not necessarily even asking for them. I just wanted to say that I appreciated that explanation because it presented a different way of understanding that to me. That was a lot less uh, threatening. And that is appealing to someone of my perspective. So uh, if you have additional thoughts on that, uh, go ahead. But you know, I, I think we can kind of leave it up to the questions. I bet this will come up, but um, on one, on one hand, I guess I would say that it, we are condemned by God, right? Because God is good. God is the ultimate judge. And so the, I, I want to affirm that, but yeah. there's many who would explain hell 
as being locked from the inside. This is kind of a famous phrase. I believe it's a C.S. Lewis quote um, that he said, you know, hell is locked, sorry, the door of hell is locked from the inside, meaning that it, you know, people will reject God to some to, to such an extent that they would rather, you know, they would rather go to this very unhappy place, to put it very mildly, um, out of their own volition than to be reconciled with God, you know, than to have the humility to have their evil deeds exposed and then to accept uh, God as, as kind of the protagonist of the story, right? This the supreme good. Um, so it to to some extent, I think some Christians would say both. You're kind of condemned by God, but you're also condemned by by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure, again, in the discussion tonight, some of this will, will come out in a better way. But I'll turn it over. Yeah, perhaps we'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, let's see. I know Brian is uh, up first. So, Brian, if you want to unmute your mic, you're all set. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I just wanted to make an observation uh, that I think kind of cast uh, cast this discussion in a in a different light. I I agree with everything you said about the light and darkness, but when you when you consider it in the context, it was uh, it was it seemed like it was a rebuke to Nicodemus because he came to Jesus at night um, and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. By we, he's speaking to him. He, he's referring to himself and his fellow uh, religious leaders, which kind of casts the whole idea of you know, believe, belief in salvation. And I think it raises interesting elements. Um, he believed in a sense, like they all recognized that Jesus was of God. But they, but Nicodemus wouldn't be seen with him in broad daylight. Like they would pass any modern Christian uh, religious test, um, they would they would be passably saved by today's standards, at least popularly speaking. But he rejected that level of belief. He's talking about something else entirely when he talks about uh, believing for eternal life. Um, I just thought that was a. I just thought that would cast the discussion in a in a bring out interesting elements to it that it'd be worth thinking about. Uh, my other observation, and and I'm glad you brought this up first because I didn't want to. I was I was kind of uh, worried about how unpopular I'd be for broaching the subject, but uh, nowhere in the entire Bible does it ever say does it does it ever discuss this idea of dying and going to heaven as a disembodied spirit. Um, there's no shortage of passages in the Bible that seem to say that if you expect to find it there, but none of them actually say that they're always talking about resurrection from the dead or the indwelling of the spirit. And in John in particular, a lot of the passages we think are talking about that they're well, the overall theme of John is about the temple, um, about Jesus as the temple, the church becoming the new temple. Um, and that's that's a theme that's going to there are passages we're going to talk about that uh, that we might be inclined to read them as being about dying and going to heaven as a disembodied spirit. But they're really talking about the temple. And when you consider John three in light of the the imagery and the function of the temple about how everything had to be con- consecrated with a sin offering only then could the, with the presence of God enter the temple. Only then could humans approach God in the temple. 
it, it kind of clicks a lot better. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to add to your point and uh, make those observations. Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, you know, just to provide some background information to the to the listeners and, and Brian, feel free to add to this. It there are different views on what happens between kind of now to the people who've passed away between now and the time of the new heavens and the new earth, right? At the, the time of the new heavens and the new earth, everybody agrees that there's a, a bodily resurrection. Like, like, like I just quoted the creeds, the early creeds, everybody agrees on that. Um, now what happens between now and then most Christians believe that the disembodied spirits are with God uh, in perhaps something more like what heaven is depicted in in popular media. Um, but there's another view which would say that no, uh, people, when they pass away, they simply kind of sleep. They, they just are not conscious until that day when they're resurrected. And certainly, I don't want to take a position today on this. It goes way beyond what kind of what we're studying today. Um, but I guess people, you know, I, I'm happy to make people aware that those are the possible views on this. Those, those are definitely different views, but the, the question is where do those views come from? And if you, if you trace the origin of that idea, you can't find it in the Bible anywhere. Like I said, if you, if you expect to find it there, there, there's no shortage of passages that would seem to reinforce that. It, if you lock somebody in solitary confinement who had never read the Bible, never heard of Christianity, had no idea about what to expect there, gave them a Bible, and after they could read through that thing all day, every day for a year, when they come out at the end, they will have no concept of this popular idea of dying and going to heaven. In fact, they'll be surprised to hear it. We can trace the origin of it to, I mean, we see it in uh, Greco-Roman mythology, if you read the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid, there's no there. They talk about going to the underworld and talking to the uh, the disembodied shades who dwell there, and it's in Gnosticism and Manichaeanism. If you read Augustine, a lot of these ideas are were he didn't they didn't originate with him, but he kind of uh, institutionalized a lot of them. But as you pointed out, when you look at the earliest creeds, they had no notion of this. It was all about uh, bodily resurrection and the renewal of the earth. And it, and it's right there in the Lord's Prayer. Um, you, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's just no mention of nobody ever asked for this. Uh, it's never described as happening. It's never, it just doesn't show up as a concept in the Bible anywhere. Um, and once you're once you're aware of that and you're reading the Bible, you really can't unsee it. Like it'll, like all of these passages that you previously thought said that, they like it. it it'll it'll ring as untrue. So people might re, people might have a strong reaction to this now as they hear me saying it, but it'll be kind of like a rock in their shoe as, as they try to find it in the Bible and it it and it evaporates before their eyes. They'll have a they'll have a harder and harder time maintaining that. But uh, anyway, I sorry to open that big can of worms and leave it in your lap. But uh, yeah. I I I think it's kind of an I think it's kind of a big deal that so many Christians think the Bible teaches this when it doesn't, and it it speaks to a, a bigger underlying problem about how we 
we just we don't really read the Bible. We we get our ideas about what it teaches from we're we're indoctrinated into them by our culture, and then we check the Bible after the fact. But a lot of what we think is in there just isn't. But uh, anyway, I don't want to monopolize the whole time with a with a TED talk or a sermon. So <laughs> thank you for indulging me. <laughs> thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Uh, let's see. Gilgamesh is up next. Gilgamesh, go ahead and unmute your mic if you yeah. want. Yeah, I wanted. You brought up about sin, mm-hmm. and since something I've been going through my head and everything, that the original sin was disobedience, and all through that came all the seven deadly sins. And it's like if you look at they like um, look at what it says about gluttony. Gluttony people think means to you think of a fat big fat person no gluttony just means consumption to consume it's like with uh greed greed's all about you know you can't fill that hole in your heart so you have to get more and more not being content with what you have have to have it all you know the avarice jealousy you know lust envy all that stuff it's like what lucifer did he got jealous of man so he thought he it made him become envious of why God chose man over him, over over the angels, and then his pride took over, and he couldn't stop himself. And that's you know like why pride is considered the deadly sin because a lot of times everybody, when you look at it, they let their pride take over and do things that if they thought about it, they go, "Oh, what was I?" Do? When when they calm down, they have a chance to think about it. They're able to go reflect on, go, "Oh, what the hell did I do?" Or stop, you know, that's, you know, the problem with, you know, is that when we look at it, we, we always get this depiction of like lust being a, a person who's lusting after another person. It could be an item. It could be anything that you feel that you have to have. You have to go after you're lusting after something that you can never have. Um, that's, that's the way I've always looked at each of these is that, you know, we all commit one of these. And, you know, if the idea that if you commit sin that gets, keeps you out of heaven, then we're all screwed. And I know people have mentioned this. Oh, if you if you commit a sin, you know, the idea it's like what you said last week about um, as, you know, the whole idea of being reborn, born again. Like, you know, and you were right. As long as you repent and you have God, you, you, you know, you have God in your heart, you know, that whole thing, you're going to get into heaven. Anybody can get into heaven. It's the same thing with the with sin. We're, we carry the original sin of disobedience, but we can correct ourselves from going, doing things like what, what uh, Cain did to Abel, killing his brother because he was jealous of God choosing his brother over him. You, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. Um, so let me... In, I know that you know this already, but just so the the audience is, uh, or I shouldn't say the audience, the other participants are uh, are aware as well. The Bible doesn't quite set out this idea of seven deadly sins, right? That yeah. Um, so, but we can still use that idea for these are very kind of very bad sins, right? Yeah. Um, but the Bible doesn't quite use that phrasing. What what the Bible no, does doesn't. say essentially that sin leads to death. So mm-hmm. normally, right, the idea would be that any sin 
uh, will will result in damnation apart from Christ. Yeah. And just like you said, I, at the end of the day, I think we can describe sin like like you're saying, which is to to pursue something other than God. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, anything that kind of distracts us from God and his ways. Right. Because mm-hmm. if we're pursuing God, then we will do as he says and we will follow his moral law. We will. Right. Uh, and any time yeah. that we do something other than that, we are, so to speak, committing a deadly sin. Well, uh, yes. Yeah. Just look at what he did to Cain when, when, you know, when Cain killed Abel, look at how God, the reaction God had to that. When he saw, you know, they both were trying to build a tribute to him, and God said he chose Abel, and look what Cain did, and God just couldn't under, couldn't believe what Cain, what Cain did. So his punishment to him was was quite like you go, wow, that is extreme. But you look at the fact that God's watching this horrible deed being done by Cain, so he punishes him for all of eternity. Is that right. is am I am I understanding that right about you know? We do have two more questions. Okay. just before the top there, so we'll probably have to wrap it there. Uh, okay, but uh, thank you for the thoughts on uh-huh. the question, Gilgamesh. Yep, and maybe we'll go go back to your last comment, Gilgamesh. Let's let the other two people speak, and then we may get back to that. Yeah, we may have time, uh, depending on how deep the questions are. But Batman is up next, so Batman, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Good evening. Uh, forgive me, oh, well. I came in a little bit late, so um, I've got uh, only kind of a cursory understanding of what the topic was tonight. Yeah. But um, I did catch the last few comments that were made, and I sort of threw in a question there. Um, and I'm surprised they got in, frankly, but here we are. So Everyone's quiet uh, tonight, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But... Um, so God is the supreme good, and we live in a modern context in which we only exist due to original sin, right? Um, so thus we are condemned naturally and need to believe in sort of the order in need to be saved. Am I getting this incorrect? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's mostly correct. Uh, I You can understand original sin in a couple of different ways. Um, one way is to think that we inherit guilt from Adam, okay? So essentially we're born guilty regardless of of anything that we've done. Uh, A different understanding of it, and that would be the Augustinian understanding, the the different understanding would be that original sin is actually a change in our nature. Like we're fallen, so we're, we're bent, so to speak. And so we all end up bringing guilt upon ourselves because we all do sinful things. So it's not inherited guilt, but an inherited sinful nature. Um, and depending on which faith tradition you belong to, you might prefer one or the other. Does that help at all? I, I didn't uh, mean to yes. like dodge. I, I'm not trying to dodge, no, so no, no, please no, go I, ahead. And- <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't see that as a dodge. Um, actually, that's interesting, and I'll have to think about that. But um, I, I have, however, heard from others that those who are not ever exposed to the faith, those, say, for example, raised in... Uh, you know, fuck you, Afghanistan, uh, who have never even heard of Christianity, who spend their entire lives around goats and uh, mud huts, are they're not guilty because they've never heard um, uh, 
anything that would have actually put them on the path, if that makes any sense. So they can't be held to account in a spiritual sense. Um, <laughs> is that something that you believe or is that something you think is sort of just a fantastical idea? No, I, I actually, I anticipated this question tonight. I thought it would, it would come up. Um, this is a very difficult question. I stumbled question. onto it by accident then. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this, the way we would normally phrase this, right, would be the fate of the unevangelized, right? What happens to the people who never get to hear the gospel? They never get the opportunity to accept Christ. It is a very difficult question. Um, and uh, I know that we don't have a whole lot of time, but it, we may have to revisit this next time because I want to make sure that I don't just like you know, throw in a 30 second response and leave it. But there's really a, a, like at least three options that, that you could consider. Um, some Christians, like for example, Catholics, might believe that people will only end up in hell if they make kind of a fully informed rejection of the gospel. So there is a chance in the afterlife to reject the gospel. Um, now, normally Protestants will not hold this view, nor not always, but generally a Protestant believes that your your opportunities during life. So what happens to the unevangelized? I suppose you could take the very hardcore answer, which is to say, and, and by hardcore, I'm not criticizing it or meaning that it's false. I'm just laying out the options. You could just say, well, that person is is damned. They they did not ex accept Christ during life, and, and that's that. Um, and at first, that sounds incredibly unsavory, but but there's actually, you know, perhaps, for example, uh, God, um, God knew that these people would not accept the gospel, regardless of whether it was presented to them. So it did not matter that they were born in circumstances where they would never hear it, right? That's one possible explanation. The other, at least the third option, uh, and actually, there would be a fourth one, so I'm going to cover that. But really, I will come back to this some other day. I don't, I don't want to half explain this. But a third option would be that people, um, they're able to respond to God positively, even without hearing like the name of, of Christ, right? Think of, for example, Job in the Old Testament. Job was not an, was not an Israelite. But he had a relationship with God and he reacted positively to God. So whatever revelation these people are given, they are still able to react either positively or negatively. Okay. And finally, the fourth option to this is that everyone will go to heaven. <laughs> that sounds like a total cop out. But let me explain this just, <laughs> just to make sure that uh, at least I'm fair to this. Um, there is a there's a kind of universalism that is definitely not Christian, okay? That is just every religion kind of leads to the same thing. Okay, that's clearly not Christianity. But there's a kind of universalism that we could still call Christian, that they would still affirm that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But they believe that eventually everyone will come to Christ. And perhaps it won't happen in this life, but then it will happen in the next. And but everyone eventually sees the goodness of Christ and they accept, uh, you know, his sacrifice and forgiveness and, and they end up in heaven. So those are the four potential views. Now, I don't believe that all four views are equally strong by any means, but I, at least I want to, I want to start there. Um, and I guess since, because it's eight o'clock, I'm going to leave my answer there, but I want to explore that further next time if, if that's okay. 
I will do my best to attend next time. Then. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Batman. Uh, we are at the top of the hour. You think you have time for one more? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, Eric and Cindy, if you guys want to chime in, go ahead. Give them a minute. I had to find the button. Can you uh, hear there me? There you go. Yeah. Um, I'll be really, really fast. So um, it actually, it has to do with where they, um, all I keep saying is that the darkness, right? They like the darkness. And that applies so much to like where we see with like politicians. It'll talk about, I think it's in John's, isn't it, Robert? Or John's. And John, where the Pharisees, when they ask him a question, they won't answer the question because they're weighing the consequences of, if I answer this way, it means one thing. If it answers that way, it'll mean something different. And I don't like either option. So I'm just not going to answer your question. Mm -hmm. Like they won't answer Jesus when he asks him a question. And, um, you know, Romans, right? Romans talks about how the law is written on our hearts, whether we're taught, taught about it or not. We know, we know right and wrong. And we know when we're manipulating the situation for ourselves or we're lying or we're, you know what I mean? Like we, we know it. And they knew it when he's talking about that, where they love the darkness. And that's why they're not going to see the light because they don't want anything to do with it. It doesn't work. So that's just my observation. I hope that was faster. Yeah, so and Robert I have nothing to add to that. I agree with that. Oh, sorry. I think Eric maybe was talking as well. No, he's not even here. Oh, okay. <laughs> he was supposed to be back, and he didn't get here. <laughs> so. All right. Well, thank you, Cindy. Have a great night. Uh, okay. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before we finish up? Uh, very briefly, um, this conversation kind of relates to last week in the sense that we were talking about the unpartable sin. And if I hope maybe today has shed some light on that conversation from last week, this idea that at the end of the day, the unpartable sin, unpardonable sin, forgive me, is to reject Christ, right? Like, because all sins are deadly, but none of them are unpardonable except for rejecting the pardon, rejecting the forgiveness. So I hope, I don't know if that was clear last time, and I, I just wanted to clear it up. Hmm. I did get a lot of questions about school shooter heaven throughout the week after that. <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't know that I have the answer, but I feel more clear than I did prior. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you guys for attending as always. Uh, have a great night. We will be back next Saturday night as usual, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Hope to see you then. Thanks. Bye.